We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy yourself. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happened. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. This week we're going to be taking a look at 2000's Unbreakable, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Here's a clip. Hi. You're in the emergency room of the Philadelphia City Hospital. I'm gonna ask you some questions. Where were you sitting on the train? Against the window. In the passenger car? Yes. You're certain you were in the passenger car? Yeah. Where are the other passengers? Your train derailed took a curve too fast. A second train collided with yours after it derailed. The debris spread over one mile. Why are you looking at me like that? There are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems you are the only survivor of this train wreck. And two, you don't have a scratch on you. I know what's going through your mind right now. You're searching for meaning in all of this. No one thing. 131 people died so you could finally understand the destiny for which you were born. Are you ready for the truth? All right, that was a clip from 2000's Unbreakable, starring Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, my name is Patrick Murphy, and joining me, of course, as always, is Ricky D. Hello, Patrick. Hello, listeners. Uh, and also joining us is Unbreakable Superfan. That's the official title that we're going with, Aisha Newton. Hey, guys. All right, so I picked this movie, Rick. Um, for those who don't know, Unbreakable is sort of a superhero origin story but with a, a, definitely a different sensibility than the origin stories that we've, we've gotten over the last couple decades. 
Um, so I picked it because I hadn't seen it in a little while, and I wanted to know how well, a long while really, and I wanted to know how it would hold up after watching the spate of Marvel and DC movies, and the you know the Christopher Nolan Batman films, and all these other superhero movies that have come out since 2000, which has been a flood of them. Because back then we didn't really have a ton of them. Um, Spider Man, I think Sam Raimi's Spider Man had just come out in 1999, but other than that, we weren't really getting a boatload of superhero movies yet. Um, yeah, so that's why I picked Unbreakable, and I could say that I it holds up really well and probably even does better after seeing all the, the noisy Marvel movies. I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, I mean, I personally think it's perfect. I mean, it's I actually appreciate the movie that much more now after sitting through all of the Avengers and Captain America and Wonder Woman. Like, the beauty of the movie lies in its simplicity. Hey, do we have to put Wonder Woman in the same category as the Avengers? Hey, it's a superhero movie, man. Gotta do it. <laughs> they all have crumbling towers of stone and concrete and explosions. Yeah, so explosions every 10 seconds. <laughs> they're all in the same category as far as I'm concerned. Maybe you can put the, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy in a slightly separate category just because it has a completely different tone. But uh, the rest of them, they're all the same. Agreed. <laughs> I think it was in 2015 we made a list over on the old website and it was a list of the best comic book movies if I, if I remember correctly I think on the top 20 15 of 20 were released before the year 2000 it was like t released in the year 2000 or prior to 2000 it was like Blade, Darkman Batman, the original Superman and so on and so forth there were so many great comic book movies released the thing is back then there was no Marvel Cinematic Universe so Spider-Man made money, Batman made money, Superman made money, but they weren't making these superhero movies like every two weeks. Like nowadays, it seems like every month there's a new superhero movie and or TV show. I think, I think Aisha, you're right. It is sort of like almost pitch perfect and I think has an origin story. I think it's like by far the best of all of them, even though these characters don't come from a comic book. Like there's no original source material. These characters were written for this movie. But what I find amazing about this movie, watching it again, 20 years later, guys, this movie came out in 2000 in November. So next week, it's going to turn 20 years old. But what I find amazing about this movie is it is part of two trilogies. Because I think, if I'm not mistaken, he always had the idea to make a sequel. I'm not sure if he always had the idea to make a trilogy. Maybe he did. But regardless, this movie falls in between his original trilogy, which includes The Sixth Sense, Signs, and Unbreakable. And the reason why I call that an, a trilogy is because for me, that's sort of like his spiritual trilogy. It, all three of those movies, and I won't spoil the other two for anyone who hasn't seen Signs and The Sixth Sense, but all three of those movies deal with issues of human spirit, identity, identity crisis, faith. You know, a character trying to find himself, trying to find meaning in life. Like, if you look at Mel Gibson's character in Signs, you look at Bruce Willis's character in The Sixth Sense, and again, Bruce Willis here in Unbreakable, and to some extent, Sam Jackson's character in Unbreakable. So, for me, like, yes, like, Sixth Sense and Signs are loaded with religious images, not so much Unbreakable, 
but all three characters are sort of similar in terms of where they are in their lives, in terms of like them being family men, in terms of them, um, in, th in terms of all three characters going through some kind of like midlife crisis. And it's also interesting that and I've read a lot of uh, interviews with M. Night, and they bring up this point where M. Night was born into an upper class family. He comes from a family of doctors. He himself was a doctor, correct? Or studying to be a doctor. And yet all of his films, well, at least his three early films, the three originals, the three big ones, I should say, Sixth Sense, Science, and An Unbreakable, they all represent the working class. And so in all three movies, all of the families, the three men are all part of the working class. And, you know, you when you compare it to movies nowadays, like the Marvel films or even the DC films, everything is over the top. Everything is over-exaggerated. Everyone has to look pitch perfect and beautiful. In this movie, the characters have flaws, including the hero. So in the first scene in which we see Bruce Willis's character, David, he's shown as a man who's flawed. He's um, hiding his wedding ring. He's flirting desperately with some lady who sits next to him on a train. He fails. You know, he doesn't necessarily pick her up. Pick, you know, instead he creeps her out. She wants to, like, change seats. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like there's something about this movie where I kind of feel like M. Night is a lot more patient than, than the rest of the, the filmmakers, directors working in Hollywood. Like, if you look at the pacing of the film, for example, uh, we can talk about the camera placement, the camera shots uh, a little later on. But it's just like he's more patient in telling the story. And do you guys think that, like, this movie kind of feels like the first act of a bigger story? Like, I think if nowadays you, this would be like the first 30 minutes of a movie. Yeah, it, I mean, just doing a little checking up on this, apparently... Uh, Shaman had sort of laid out plans for a trilogy for this movie where the first stage was sort of the birth, he called it, of the superhero. The second stage would have been him fighting a bunch of villains. And then the third the third movie would or third story would have been him facing off against his arch enemy, which, of course, is, you know, Mr. Glass. So I assume over the trilogy. So, yeah, this does have the, I think it intentionally has that feeling where it was setting up. Uh, you know a bigger a bigger conflict or a bigger story yeah because i kind of feel like when we get to the end and he realizes mr glass's master plan that's like the 30 minute mark of a marvel movie i mean in a way it almost felt like a play you sort of have that opening where you get that introduction to the character even the pacing it's kind of slow like it's not sort of jumping into right away like you know you see him on the train and then he's waving at the little kid so you're like oh he's kind of like you know Nice guy, family guy. But then you see he sort of slips off his wedding ring where he's checking out that chick's tattoos and her little belly shirt. And I just, I don't know, I just really like the way it sort of took its time. The whole movie ultimately is really more origin story than anything else. For both characters, too. Yeah, like it really takes its time and I really appreciated that. Well, that's the one thing. Uh, you said for both characters, it's an origin story. I, it's it's interesting to me that he begins the movie not with Bruce Willis and the, and the train crash, which is, I think, how a lot of people would have started telling this story. There's a guy on a train, it crashes, and he walks away from it. That's how you would start the movie. But he starts the movie with the birth of Elijah, mm -hmm. which is interesting, which also almost makes it feel like Elijah is the main focus of the story more so than Bruce Willis is. I think he is, though. I mean, he's a centerpiece because it's not about who gets the most screen time and it's not about who the hero and the villain is, but it's about the person that sets all the pieces in motion. 
You know what I mean? Like, if this was a chess game, he's playing white, not black. He's making the first move each and every single time. He's one step ahead, three steps ahead of Bruce Willis's character, David. I mean, yeah, I totally agree. But also, Patrick, it's it's also interesting that they open with him being born. And in the first scene of David is him in the in the, in the the train wreck, in the train crash, which you can argue is him sort of, like, being reborn. Because it's not the traditional, like, Superman-type thing where he lands on a farm when he's like a baby and right away we know that this kid's special because he came from outer space. Well, you sort of get that with Mr. Glass's character when the doctor comes in and asks that they drop the baby and they mention how he's got multiple fractures. I kind of feel like when it starts on the train, that's not necessarily his rebirth. His rebirth would have been more the car accident where he at that point decides that he no longer wants to play football. Because that's him making a conscious decision that he's going to change where his life is going to go. He clearly could have been like a professional football player for like forever because he never gets hurt. But, but there's a quote in the movie. I wrote, I wrote a few notes here. So one of the quotes is, did you know that this was the first morning? I can't remember that. I didn't open up my eyes and feel sadness. Do you know what I'm talking about? That little bit of sadness, David Dunn. So I think the thing is, is that, yeah, when he fakes being injured because of a car crash, when he's younger, because he decides he doesn't want to play football so he can marry his wife and live happily ever after he's still not happy he's still not fulfilled he's still sad inside and that's probably why their marriage isn't working but when he ends up in that train crash that's when his wife comes back to him that's when he goes back to his family that's when he starts to discover who he really is and so that's why i'm saying that to me that incident the train crash not the car crash feels like it's his rebirth all right fair enough i think there's like there's certainly a case to be made for that and and since Shyamalan even referred to the story as sort of a birth story, birth of the of the superhero, um, that that's certainly fair fair play. I would say that I think that even though that that, that David Dunn finding himself, finding out who he is, and finding out why he feels sad in the morning, and then doing something to solve that, still never felt as important to me as Elijah finally getting the answers that he was seeking. I, I guess there's a, there seemed to be more of a, an undercurrent of emotion in, in Elijah's motivations. Because Elijah knows, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, I, th- I think Tarantino summed up the movie perfectly. Like, I wouldn't market the movie like this because to me it gives away the big twist. But he his his summary of the movie is what if Superman actually existed but didn't know he was Superman? And that's the thing right. about David, like mm-hmm. Bruce Willis's character. He doesn't know. If at the end of the day, if you don't know, you don't know, right? But when you know, or when you suspect, Mm -hmm. that's when it drives you nuts. And that's the thing about Elijah. Like Elijah's quote that I wrote down was, I almost gave up hope. There were so many times I questioned myself. I've made so many sacrifices, but it's all been worth it. There are millions and millions of mediocre people in the world, David. Isn't it great that we are not one of them? That's his whole... His whole purpose in life is, or not his, what he decides to be his purpose is to find his complete opposite, to prove that they are special. And there is someone like David who has these powers. Yeah, he wants to prove that he has a, that he has a purpose in this world because of his, his condition. You'd want to know that that condition was meant for something as opposed to just bad luck. Exactly. Just life of suffering. Yeah. Like, like why I just, <laughs> he drew the short straw. It's way more interesting to think that like I, I didn't draw the short straw. I'm meant for something, mm-hmm. and what I'm meant for is to do battle with this other guy in some way, uh, like in a comic book. 
For sure. I also really admire how, despite the fact that he's working in the superhero genre, he constructs a believable fictional world with believable characters, even though he's dealing with unbelievable events. And that's why I love this story. Like, a lot of people always point to Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, or even like a movie like The Joker, which I wasn't a big fan of, but how they feel more grounded in reality because Batman himself doesn't really have superpowers, right? But M. Night creates a movie here, which is a superhero origin story for two characters, be it the villain and hero, depending on which way you look at it. But the movie never plays out like a traditional comic book movie. There's really no action scenes. There's maybe one fight scene, which lasts like maybe three minutes. And it's barely a fight scene because really it's just Bruce Willis yeah, choking a guy. Exactly. <laughs> it's a real time chokehold. <laughs> <laughs> Although I got to give it up to that guy who was pretty strong to resist uh, the choke of a guy who could bench press 350 pounds um, and fling him all over the room. Maybe that guy was a, a slight supervillain of his own. Yeah, yeah. And. Um... Yeah, so I just want to quickly mention that we're not gonna we're not gonna spoil Split nor Glass, but if you haven't, like, first of all, if you're listening to this podcast, we assume you've watched Unbreakable because we're gonna spoil the whole damn movie. It came out twenty years ago. Catch up. Yeah, but no, because I was at a family <laughs> dinner yesterday. I was talking to my nephew, and he hasn't seen the other two films, so I just I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Split obviously is its own thing. Glass, I think everybody understands, is a direct sequel in many ways to to Unbreakable. So I don't think that you can. We we don't need to talk about spoiling Glass or anything. But I think it's we could probably reference it. I assume both of you guys have seen Glass. I know. I mean, I had to review it for the site. So. Yeah, I uh, I actually like both Split and Glass. Glass is my least favorite. Unbreakable to me is like almost a pitch perfect movie. Split was just a lot of fun. Glass was kind of like just more of a curiosity. I want to see how he's going to end this trilogy in the making of like, it took him like 20 years to make this trilogy, which in itself, like again, the fact that it's part of two trilogies, I mean, I don't know if M. Night knew that he would actually be able to pull it off, but the fact that he was actually able to make a sequel and then turn it into a trilogy 15, 20 years later, still working inside a Hollywood system with these big actors is sort of impressive. Even if you don't like the movies. No, for sure. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of Glass. I think it it basically repeats a lot of the same uh, themes from Unbreakable, which is them questioning whether or not they really are superheroes. And I I, I just remember thinking, like, yeah, didn't we solve that at the end of Unbreakable? Yeah, <laughs> like, it didn't really need to be made. <laughs> no. And that Unbreakable is all about somebody questioning themselves. So I don't think the second movie also needed to be about that same person again questioning themselves. Like, it was kind of resolved. But uh, our... So as far as Unbreakable goes, though, it's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But <laughs> what draws you to this? Like, what? It's an interesting superhero movie, and it's very unlike even the superhero movies of that day, which were much more varied than they are now. Everything now is basically uh, assembly line superhero movies. They all look and feel the same for the most part, and they all have the same plotting. Back then, there was definitely more experimentation going on. You had you had filmmakers who were able to create their own vision, right? Tim Burton had a vision for Batman that probably nobody else would have done. Um, and I, you know, I would say that even Sam Raimi had his Spider-Man thing going on, uh, which he would perfect with Spider-Man too. Um, but, you know, 
Richard Donner and Superman, they all did their own things, right? The, those these movies didn't feel the same in, in the slightest bit. And Unbreakable's, or, you know, Sam Raimi's Dark Man especially feels bizarro. This is a completely different. I don't think there's ever been another superhero movie quite like this. And I know there have been other smaller indie films that have done superheroes in in different ways. But do you think this works like as a superhero movie, or is it just kind of a a nice low key? mystical thriller type movie no it's definitely a superhero movie mm -hmm. do you think I mean, it works as one definitely i mean it's I, I think what's great about it like i think people have gotten so used to superhero movies being all about like spandex and explosions and silly costumes that it's so nice to see what a superhero movie could really be once you strip away all of the CGI and explosions and show the actual people who the characters really are. And I think that really works for this movie. Yeah, I think oh, I was going to say, I think we've gotten so used to superhero movies mean excess, like tons yeah. of it. They're all about that now. And this is a movie that definitely is not about that. In fact, it pairs back from comic books. It, it tries to create more grounded versions of what a comic book character might be. It goes in the opposite direction of every superhero movie. But I think that's why it works. I mean, doing something different is always refreshing, interesting, and it's new, right? It's something new, something different. So maybe not everyone's going to like it. Like, I do remember when the movie was released, it actually got a really bad cinema score. I think it's called the cinema score. When yeah. they actually go to the movie theaters and ask people to grade the movie. It, uh, it got like a C- minus or a D. So... A lot of people did not like the movie when it was released. I think they were expecting more of like a... Yeah, but they wanted the sixth sense again. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yep. exactly. That's the thing, right? And I think the marketing for this movie was also really detrimental to the film as well. Yes. Yeah. They made it seem like a spooky supernatural thriller, which exactly. it's not. Which it's not, yeah. But, but, I mean, I've been saying for years that I've always wanted a Batman movie where Batman, Bruce Wayne, just plays the detective. Like, get rid of the Batmobile and the Batplane and the Batarang and whatever you call it, the Boomerang thing. Whatever you call it. Like, get rid of his, like, <laughs> just make it a straight-up film noir detective movie. Some dude dressed up in a suit going around trying to solve a mystery, right? And I hope to God that is what Matt Reeves is doing with his Batman film. But that's why I love this movie. Um I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a film noir um, or has, like, this deep mystery. There is, like, a twist or a few twists. I mean, the whole entire movie could be viewed as a twist. But, like, M. Night, he uses all of these cinematic tools to build layers of plot, meaning, subtext, different than Hollywood directors of the time. And he uses everything from the music. We can talk about the soundtrack and how incredible it is to the color mm -hmm. palette, to the performances, yes. to the mise-en-scene. Everything about it, every color, every costume, every shot, it's chosen for a reason. This is a movie that sends shivers down my spine. It makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, specifically in those two opening scenes and then at the end of the film when we get the big reveal. Like, okay, when you look at like, I still think The Sixth Sense is an amazing movie. And every time I watch it over and over again, I'm always amazed at how he covers his ground, how every single scene... Like, you can't look at The Sixth Sense and say he cheated. Like, that is a pure twist ending in where he, the director and the writer does not cheat. They earned the ending, the twist, right? Here, mm -hmm. the same thing can be said. Like, when you get to the end of the movie and you realize that Mr. Glass, Elijah, is responsible for the train wreck, 
it makes sense because they drop all of these clues throughout the whole entire film but because his character is played has sort of i guess you can call him like the mentor like he's the one that's helping david grow and turn into the man the superhero that he's supposed to be you don't realize it at first you may be suspected but i didn't realize it at first no but it's a complete what makes that such a great twist is that it's not just surprising to the audience but it actually completes the character arc that's what elijah never feels fully developed until that moment when he reveals that he did all these things and then you finally see the character for what he is and then it all makes sense that was his motivation the entire time there's the desperation and the 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 pain that he felt all kind of put into these horrific acts uh that it's necessary for the character of elijah to have that twist. That's what makes it such a great twist. You know what the scariest thing is? To not know your place in this world. To not know why you're here. That's... It's just an awful feeling. Have you done? I almost gave up hope. There were so many times I questioned myself. You killed all those people. But I found you. So many sacrifices just to find you. Do you want to hear about my kitchen theory? Maybe theory? someone's written about this, but what? I, yeah, okay, so maybe not. Maybe <laughs> maybe I'm the only one noticed because I watched all three of his original films. Well, not original films because I think he made a film before The Sixth he, Sense, but he did. Yeah, yeah, okay, so The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, and Signs. I love Signs, by the way. So I watched. All, I love M Night. He's like one of my favorites. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. I love this guy. So in all of these movies. There's crucial, important scenes that take place inside the kitchen. And the reason why I noticed is so weird. So I had a conversation with my nephew earlier this week about kitchen parties. Like how every time he used to have a house party, there would always be kitchen people. I would call them kitchen people. So we were just talking about kitchens. And I started watching The Sixth Sense and then Science and Unbreakable. And a kitchen keeps popping up in all of these movies. So in every single one of these movies, there's a crucial scene that involves a kitchen. In this movie, there's actually quite a few, but there's a scene when Joseph, his son, pulls out the gun at the kitchen table, and he wants to prove that David is a superhero by shooting him because he would survive or somehow magically dodge a bullet, right? There's also the scene in which David is in the kitchen completely alone, thinking about his life, his family. You know what I mean? Like It's, a, it's like his character is falling apart. He's going through a midlife crisis. Um... And also, like, the way he shoots that single, like, that, that, that scene when, when the kid pulls the gun. Like, I think he uses four shots. And he uses this incredible single long take. And that single take adds to the tension. Because okay? it's a very simple scene. Yes, the kid pulls a gun, so you, you do expect a bit of tension and suspense, right? But, but, but the way M. Night films it, he, it's like it's weird because this whole entire film, like, I was told... That there's like I was watching the making of documentary on the DVD, right? And they said they used over 30 single long takes. But when you watch the movie, you don't notice any big, huge single long takes. It's not like one of those single long takes that you see in um, 
And uh, what was that movie that won uh, cinematography last year at the Oscars? The one that I, I dislike because it's all done in digital. The war movie. Oh, oh, 1917. I was thinking you when you, you were talking about like Children of Men or something like that. Which well, is Children of Men is kind of like really cool, but like it's lots, these, it's these yeah, it's these long takes where it draws so much attention. It's like, look at me, but what purpose does the camera shot serve apart from it just being really cool? Like, but the way mm -hmm. M. Night chooses his long takes, they serve a purpose. They build the characters. They help with some kind of big reveal. They help tell the story. And so in this scene, he uses, again, he uses this long take. And I didn't really notice it until watching it again for like the seventh time. Um, anyhow, so all of his movies, the kitchen plays an important role, or at least a lot of things happen inside the kitchen. <laughs> so it happens again in, in, uh, in Unbreakable. I'm telling you, man. I'm going to have to go. Go back and watch The Happening to see if there was a kitchen table scene in that movie. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that theory, but okay. I don't know about The Happening, but the first three films for sure. And also, oh my god, I just, what, I just thought of another one. Uh, at the end of the film, when, like the following morning after he saves the family, yes. he's sitting in the kitchen and yes. he shows uh, Joseph the newspaper. He slides the newspaper over nods his head as if to confirm that, yes, that was me. I am a superhero. So that in itself is an important scene because he builds trust and a bond with his son yet again. And his son is sort of like the only person in the world that knows his secret identity. Tell me, man, it's all about the kitchen. Yeah. Can I just say in that scene with the newspaper, like hats off to the son. That was like some serious heavy lifting that kid had to do in that scene. The way he just like breaks into tears silently. It's not like over the top or crazy. Like, I just thought that was a really great scene. And that kid, like, kudos to him. You know what's embarrassing? Every time I sit down to watch this movie, I, I always, for whatever reason, think it's the same kid from The Sixth Sense. And it's not. You think no. it's Haley Joe Osment? <laughs> yeah, I always think it's him. For some reason, I always remember him in this movie. Because I have no idea who Spencer Tree... Is this, who's his name? Spencer Clark? Spencer Tree Clark? Uh, yeah, yeah, Spencer Tree Clark. Yeah. yeah, but he's been in a lot of movies. Um, he was in Mystic River. I know he's in Mystic River, but I don't like. He's not someone I would normally recognize. Well, I always think of that scene as the Tropicana scene because he's sitting there pouring his orange juice, and for some reason, he's wearing this green tie-dye shirt that matches the box of orange juice. <laughs> See, that's the thing that I love about early M Night Shyamalan movies, and he still tries to do stuff like that in his later movies. It just is not as successful, but it shows the entire process of the kid pouring his orange juice. And you're thinking, why am I watching this? But that that's part of the atmosphere of his movies. He does do those nice, long, patient takes. And though I think I can see some people being you know driven mad by having to watch some of this stuff. I don't know. I find it completely relaxing to just this. This movie for me is just it's so easy to sit back and sort of get absorbed in it just because and it, it's, it has a lot to do with those long, patient takes. If there was a lot of editing in this movie, I don't think it would play nearly as well. No, because it makes it feel more real. It really makes you feel like you're just sitting there looking at the mundane, everyday life of these characters and watching your kid pour orange juice really slowly and sloppily is life. <laughs> right. I mean, he, they, they clearly, I mean, I don't know how many shots are in this movie, but I do know, cause I, they said it in the interview, there was over 30 long takes. And I, I did notice that when watching a the movie, there are very simple scenes, like a scene in a diner or a conversation between two people. And normally 
a filmmaker would have two or three cameras and they would cut back and forth medium shot close up of these characters right and what he does in this movie is he uses like either a dolly or a pen i mean the opening scene is a perfect example so you got like what five no seven people crammed into by the way are they in the back of a shopping mall is she giving birth in a in a mall or something in, in the, like a department in, store yeah it was a department store like maybe the dressing room or something like that yeah that's what it looked like to me I wasn't sure. But anyway, anyhow, they are crammed into the small room and the guy walks in and the camera, it's it's not, it's like, I guess it's it's a handheld camera. It's, it's handheld camera work, right? There's a guy, I guess, holding a camera. Anyways, yeah. he's in the, the camera's in the room and the camera just slightly pans left and right and he uses the small mirror that's mm-hmm. hung on the wall so he can catch a glimpse of specific characters and get a close-up of their reactions of what they're saying. But that is so effective, along with the score, the music, the scene, the acting, performances. But the way he shoots it and frames it, it's 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 amazing. And then he does the exact same thing in the second scene, the follow-up scene, where David's in the train. It's a really weird shot because it's like the camera's low because they're sitting down on the train, right, clearly. And it's like the camera's in between the two seats. I, I always thought it was the kid. It was the Me viewpoint too. of the kid that That's was watching. That's what I thought too. Yeah. That's what I thought too. Yeah, but he uses the pen. So it's, it. it's 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 a very simple shot, but um, I don't know. There's I find I find like I feel that's why like a lot of people compare him to like Hitchcock. I guess yeah, but I feel like he's more uh, influenced uh, inspired by Spielberg. I mean, when he when you mentioned the the kid where he's pouring the 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 orange juice, right? I mean. You see that in every Spielberg movie from the 80s. Like, there's always a family in a kitchen, and they're making breakfast, and the camera just follows them throughout the house, just doing whatever they do on a normal day. Pouring milk in their cereal and spilling a little bit and all that kind of stuff, yeah. the Spielberg definitely loves that sort of home life type stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, another thing I liked about that scene in the changing room, I mean, I liked how they filmed it in the reflection of, I guess, one of the mirrors in the dressing room. And that's sort of where they start you start noticing more, I guess, color again, because you see Elijah's born, the mom's wearing a purple dress. He's wrapped in some sort of weird kind of like blanket and it's got like a light purple border on it. And you start seeing more and more purple on Elijah throughout the whole movie. I mean, even David on the train is wearing like a light green shirt. Uh, Is he wearing green on the train? He's wearing like a green shirt. Yeah. Because he wears green throughout most of the movie, except a few scenes where he wears yellow. Whenever he wears yellow, something bad happens or something good's not happening in his life. But but the weird thing is, in the making of documentary, it was um, it was Sam Samuel Jackson's idea for him to wear purple. So I'm not entirely sure if the costume designer M Knight had this idea for a color palette where one character gets green and another character gets purple, and those are their colors. But it's a great choice to use purple. Because being the villain in this film, like when you think of comic book villains, you think of like the Joker or Magneto or Lex Luthor. Like some of the classic villains in comic books all wear purple. It's a great color, man. You got to have a personality to pull it off. (laughs) I'm not entirely sure what the orange means. Well, orange is sort of a warning color. You see it on construction sites and safety cones. That's oh, right, right, hole. you're right. So orange, yellow, and red is when something bad happens. Or yeah. There's a lot of, of strange little things in this. Like, uh, there's a lot of upside-down shots. He has a lot of people upside-down. So the little girl on the train at the beginning of that scene is upside-down, and she's looking at him upside-down. And then his own son 
yeah, son's watching TV upside down. And yeah. when the comic book is handed to Elijah, you know, early on when they're sitting on the park bench, it, it the entire shot is upside down. Oh, I love that scene so much. I love that scene. It is a really good one. Yeah. I, oh, so fantastic. <laughs> and when glass falls down the stairs. Yes. And he sees the gun. And the glass cane shatters. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not sure what any of that means. I'd love to hear a theory on that. I was, as I was watching it, because uh, I watched it again last night, as I was watching I was like, why is he doing these upside down? There's clearly something going on with these upside down shots, but I couldn't figure out what. I couldn't get a common thread. I couldn't figure out, like, is the world viewed through a different perspective from these characters, but why Spencer treat Clark's character? You know, why the little girl on the train? Uh, I didn't quite get it. I'd love to hear a theory. Well, I thought it was because what he says in the movie, like Mr. Glass, when he says, like, I should have known all along, it's because of the kids. The kids are the ones who called me Mr. Glass. Mm -hmm. So when you see the upside down stuff, and it's a lot of times the kids, the comic book, I thought that tied back to that comic. I think so, because whenever we get one of those shots, there's a character who realizes something. So when Joseph is upside down watching the tv and he flips the channel to the news he hears the news of the train crash in which mm -hmm. his dad was on the train on the train i think the girl realizes that this dude is doing something wrong trying to pick up this lady and he's married uh when mr glass falls down the stairs he looks up and that's when the revelation comes that this man does indeed have the gun and david actually knew exactly what kind of gun he was holding and with the comic book, it goes back to what Aisha said. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. But there's also the glass motif, what, right? Which totally makes sense because his nickname is Mr. Glass. And again, it was Sam Jackson's idea to have this big glass walking cane, which is a really cool prop for like for a character that's supposed to be the big villain of this comic book movie. But it's not just about the cane he carries, but it's, again, going back to the very first scene and the reflections through mirrors. The whole entire film, Mr. Glass is seen through some kind of reflection. Like that scene when he's a teenager or not a teenager, teenager when he's like a boy and mm -hmm. he gets handed the comic book. Like we, we first see a reflection of him watching TV. We get all of yes. these reflections of Mr. Glass throughout the whole entire film. Uh, we get a reflection of him when he drops the, the calling card on the windshield on the windshield of David's car. And so we get a reflection of him, like, like Mr. Glass. We get uh, the whole entire film. Like we just get reflections of Mr. Glass from windows or, or mirrors or you name it. I mean, it makes it, sense. Your name is Mr. Glass. Yeah, it's a nice motif to have around him. <laughs> and it also makes him seem more mysterious because you're never really truly seeing the real him. You're just seeing a reflection of him. Um, and there's, he's obviously been hiding something the entire movie, and we don't really see the real him until the very end. So it's a nice way of doing that. Those well, are the kind of things that I'm always impressed with filmmakers. You know, it's when you're when you're first putting you know in pre-production and you're getting all this stuff kind of ready because a lot of this stuff, as you talked about, the colors weren't probably they weren't in the script, they weren't on the page. Um, that was something that Samuel Jackson came up with on the set. So you write that stuff in, and you develop all of these things, but it's always fun when they can pull it together and, and make it uh, coherent. Mm -hmm throughout an entire movie which i th and i think outside of signs you know shaman's career obviously went in a different direction after signs than he probably would have liked and he has sort of made a little bit of a comeback somewhat of a, rem a renaissance with the the visit and then split and glass uh, i'm not sure what he's going to do next 
but he for at least for three movies he made three brilliant movies that uh, I, I think anybody can enjoy anytime um and this is one of them. they're all and i think they're all very different from each other even though he always got lumped in as making the same movie over and over again and always have, having to have a twist i i don't think that that was necessarily true I think that that Unbreakable is very different from The Sixth Sense, and Signs is very different from both of those movies. Um, this is just a it's a really really interesting grounded what would happen scenario that I really really enjoyed. I'm uh I'm gonna guess that he's religious. I don't know, but I mean he he obviously loves questions of religion in his, in his stories. He loves mythology and faith, and like you said, you you went down the list. Like all of his movies, sort of include those things. Um, even the characters' names are biblical. Mm-hmm. I said, even the characters' names are biblical. Yeah, you've got David, you've got Elijah, you've got the son is Joseph. I did not even think about that. <laughs> he definitely has some fascination with it, whether it's just with the, from a philosophical standpoint or whether he is, you know, a religious person himself mm-hmm. um, or a spiritual person himself. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know much about his personal life, to tell you the truth. But it it it, it layers his movies. It makes them interesting, like beyond just the surface story. Before we cut the break, I just really have to mention James Newton Howard. And his score, I think it's my favorite score of the the this trilogy, like the Unbreakable, Signs, and Sixth Sense trilogy. There's something so unique about it because it's a score made, like a soundtrack made for a superhero comic book movie. I mean, I say comic book movie; it's not based on a comic book, but whatever. A uh, movie about comic books, a movie about superheroes and supervillains, and. The, I love the the theme song for David and also the theme for Elijah. Like I just love the score. Like again, I think that's why the opening scene is so powerful, and even the closing scene because of the music. Like I, I, we say this all the time on the podcast. It's the it's the sound and the music that really gets that emotion from people like watching a movie like if you watch that scene and you turn off the sound you watch it in silence you're not going to get the same emotional reaction like you need that music mm-hmm. right yes of course the performances from the actors and what they say helps but the soundtrack just goes so far and i think uh, i think it's my favorite soundtrack that he's ever made for uh, an, an m night movie at least i gotta go with science on that one that little uh Q always sort of makes my skin crawl from science. <laughs> and I love the over I love the overture in that movie. I think it's the perfect setup. Like to me, that's his Hitchcock movie, even more oh, so than sure. the sixth sense. Hmm. Like, I I love that movie. Uh, everything about it just feels very Hitchcock. Well, the sixth sense is like Carnival of Souls and Signs is like Hitchcock. And Unbreakable, I'm not entirely sure like Spielberg, maybe? Maybe, but in a far more methodical and slower-paced way than Spielberg ever would have done. Right, that's true. I mean, Close Encounters is pretty methodical, but it 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 has moments where it's cutting very very quickly. I don't know. There's a Close Encounters is like a race to the finish line, even though it seems very slow and methodical at first. About halfway through the movie, that transitions to, you know, a little more excitement. Like Spielberg has to start building the suspense and and getting you excited about what's about to happen. 
Close Encounters begins with the aliens visiting Earth. Like, there's excitement. All yeah. the characters are rushing. Even if they're just in their kitchen, they're rushing to go somewhere and do something, find news. I mean, like, police even, cars are driving off. Yeah, like, even E.T. has a, has a chase <laughs> sequence, right? Yes, which is terrifying in the opening scene, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not even sure. I, th- I feel like Unbreakable is its own beast. I've never really seen a movie quite like it uh, since, and I don't remember one quite like it before that. I think it's his own original creation. This was an idea that Shyamalan had, and he made it his own style. I mean, that's definitely his style. There's no question about it. Um, and it's pretty honed at that point. I think he had The Sixth Sense taught him a lot. That was his first big movie. And I, th- I think he basically he honed it, to, like you said, to perfection in this movie for what he wanted this movie to be. As a piece of entertainment, I still I still prefer Signs. I think that's for my favorite movie of his, but there are flaws in that movie that I could point out. No problem. This movie, it's hard to, it's hard to pick one out. Although we will get to that in just a little bit. (laughs) Uh, With that, we should probably end this initial discussion and take a quick break. We'll be back in a bit. Here's another clip from unbreakable. No, 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 no. You need to go now. What'd I say? Do you see any Teletubbies in here? Do you see a slender plastic tag clipped to my shirt with my name printed on it? Did you see a little Asian child with a blank expression sitting outside in a mechanical helicopter that shakes when you put quarters in it? No? Well, that's what you see at a toy store. And you must think you're in a toy store because you're here shopping for an infant named Jeb. And one of us has made a gross error and wasted the other person's valuable time. This is an art gallery, my friend. And this is a piece of art. All right, that was another clip from Unbreakable. We have reached the point in the podcast where we ask our five questions. Uh, of course, we always like to start off positive. So, Aisha, what was your favorite scene from Unbreakable? Uh, my favorite scene would have to be when he goes to the park to get the comic book. I mean, I love the way the scene starts. I love how they shoot him in the reflection of the TV and then sort of pans down to the park and then it approaches sort of like from behind the park bench and then you see him go and sit down and that cool spinning action that they do where the comic book sort of writes itself. I just, every single time, I just love that scene. The kid sort of reminds me of my brother as a little kid reading comics and I just, I love it. It's perfect. There are so many great shots in that scene and there's something about the the actor who plays the child, Elijah, the looks on his face, he has the perfect look on his face for, you know, like when, when they step to the window and there's that great shot of just looking down at the park and it seems so ominous, right? Because you know that he could break anything just crossing the street, but the way he looks at his mother, the way they sort of look at each other there, it's the perfect look and I can't explain what's going on, but it makes the kid so relatable at that point. And I, I also love that the mom is making this out to be a turning point in his life but she doesn't really realize it, it did end up being a turning point in his life, but not probably as she intended. And I love that he asked, like, why am I getting this gift? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why? <laughs> it was like a very honest answer that a little like, what you're getting like, why it's not my birthday. It's like, why? And like the mom's like, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's definitely, definitely a good scene. Rick, what about you? What's your favorite scene? Okay, this is hard because there's a lot of great scenes in the movie. So the opening scene, I think, is incredible. It's maybe the best opening of any one of his movies, but it's actually the third scene. Right after the, the train crash, he wakes up in the hospital. David wakes up in the hospital. 
and they tell him that he's the only well first they say that he's one of two people who's going to survive but in like a minute he's probably probably going to be the only sole survivor because the other guy is dying in the foreground and he's in the background which is which is kind of like really creepy right yeah as the blood um, spreads across that cloth yeah. yeah yeah but the whole entire scene like especially like the way he walks out and all the people just stare at him because they're hoping and waiting that their loved ones are going to be the ones walking out and he gets to the door and you have all the reporters snapping photos and it kind of looks like it's it's in slow motion but i don't think it is completely in slow motion and again, the way M. Night holds his camera, I think we get two back-to-back long takes in those scenes. But also, because of the way it connects to the opening scene. Once again, the opening scene, you have Elijah being born, and he is born with this condition where all his bones can easily break. And then you have David, who's completely the opposite, where he survives a train crash without any scratches or bruises. He's completely fine. Those two scenes, specifically the scene when David walks out, it sent it sends shivers down my spine each and every single time I see it. So it's like 20 years later, I've seen this movie seven times, and that scene always shocks and amazes me, just like him walking away without a scratch shocks and amazes everyone in the scene, like the doctors, the police officers, etc., etc. And again, that reflects the opening scene because in the opening scene they had the exact same reaction but for a different reason because they're shocked and amazed that this baby was somehow born with broken arms and broken legs you know what i mean so it's just like it's it's a really 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 chilling scene yeah it also sets up the family dynamics without having to do a bunch of exposition you learn everything you need to know about their marriage and their how their family is operating just by you know the kid loves his dad he runs to him immediately and hugs him the wife and, and uh, his wife doesn't really like the, the the hug is very awkward. And then the kid, mm-hmm. you know, wants them to hold hands, which they do for like a second until they fall apart when the kid's not looking and they they walk out. It tells you everything you need to know about what's going on with that family. Oh yeah, with, very elegantly. Uh, all right, so my favorite scene. Uh, this is going to be a weird one, but it's the one that sticks out most in my head, and for some reason, it's the one that I enjoy watching the most. Because I like the character of Elijah so much, it's going to be an Elijah scene. It's the scene in the comic book store. And he doesn't say a word except for at the very end when he wants to buy a comic. But I love the look on his face, and I, I guess I I love the frustration that comes out there. This, uh, this character that has been searching and searching and searching, and he feels like it's coming to, you know, that he's that he's reached a roadblock that maybe what he's been looking for doesn't exist and he's never going to find it and just this idea of him being stuck there just staring and wanting to destroy that's where you first sort of see the hint of where he is a villain like the, that frustration leads him to just want to randomly destroy things uh in order to make somebody else's life miserable that night um, I don't know why that scene always has stuck out for me, but uh, it's it's my favorite for some reason. I love Samuel L. Jackson's performance in that scene, and I love just the shot of him being wheeled out and constantly hitting his brakes so that he destroys a little part of even something that he loves, which is comic books. He's just destroying little parts of it just because of frustration. Actually, I just got to give a runner-up really quick. Love that scene, but I also really, really love the scene in which he's trying to sell the artwork with the original drawing to a businessman 
Yes. Oh. <laughs> yes. And then he realizes that he's buying it for his four-year-old son. He gives him the big speech about, like, when you walked in here, did you see any Teletubbies? This isn't Toys R Us. This isn't a toy. This is, like, a piece of art. And that's why, like, this movie also doubles as a love letter to comic books. Because his speech in that scene, like, it, it speaks volumes about the art of making comic books and his passion and love for the art farm, right? But throughout the whole entire film, there's mention of comic books and why they are so special. I mean, maybe the comparison to the Egyptians and the hieroglyphics is maybe a stretch, but still, it just really feels like it is a love letter to superhero movies, uh, superhero comic books. Absolutely. I mean, the, the opening scroll, opening text is uh, definitely says speaks towards that. Uh, all right, Aisha. So this is where. This could be tough for you because you called this a perfect movie. But if there was one thing that you could change about Unbreakable, what would it be? Uh, yeah, I, I kind of struggled with this one. But I suppose if I had to change something, I found the scene towards the end where he goes to rescue uh, the family mm -hmm. was a touch long. Okay. I mean, it, it kind of, like, I got it. You were sort of trying to build the suspense and make it menacing, but there were, like, a couple of scenes where it just sort of, it kind of felt a little redundant. It sort of dragged on. He's going through the house. Then he finally finds the girls. They're there tied up. It was a little strange that this, you know, man in a poncho that you've never seen before is untying you, and nobody screamed. Nobody said a word. <laughs> After knowing what happened, I thought that was a little odd. Right. He looks scary as hell, too. Yeah. Like, he, he looks more like a serial killer than the other guy does, even. Exactly. This giant man, like, your family has been terrorized, and this giant man shows up dripping wet in the dark, and there wasn't so much as a peep. I, that was the part where I was like, okay, well, you know. Maybe they were <laughs> screamed out at that point. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but it just, just seemed all uh, just a touch too calm. Even the mother. When he goes to see her after what she's kind of been through, I was like, really? Nothing? Well, she was dead. <laughs> that was the problem with them. <laughs> like that, because both uh, later on when he shows the kid the newspaper article, both parents had died. It said, uh, two, okay. you know, you save the kids, but both parents, she was dead. Like he unties her and she slumps to the floor. Okay. I wasn't yeah. sure if she was like, actually dead at that moment or just like unconscious, but I was just oh, like, I don't know. Yeah. So I, that, I, I always thought that was weird. <laughs> I assume she was dead just because the newspaper article said that both parents were dead. Oh, okay. Um, but I always found that strange too. Like he's untying her and not, nothing, nothing giving until she slumps over. And I was like, Oh, Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I, yeah, that was, that was my one little tiny little nitpick. If I, oh, if I had any nitpick about that scene, it's the way he gets saved from the pool. Yeah. That was a bit weird too. I guess that's not how I want my superhero to have his very first like eye-opening experience where he probably would have died if it wasn't for two little kids. Now, granted, he saved those kids, so in a sense, he created his own you know, rescue, but at the same time, he got really lucky those little kids came there. <laughs> Otherwise, he botches his very first attempt at being a superhero and dies in the process. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, I thought that was maybe their attempt at sort of calling back to how he almost drowned as a kid because they said two little kids were playing goofing around in the pool and he almost drowned and they changed the rules for pool safety. So I thought maybe that's what they were trying to do, like a callback to that. 
definitely. I just wish that he would have figured out his own way out of there. I, I actually love the scene of him drowning or almost drowning. I think it's that's one of the most tense drowning scenes I think I've ever seen in a movie. Um, it always I, it's uncomfortable for me to watch for some reason. Um, but uh, I wish he would have figured out how to get out of there to make him a little bit more of the hero than he just got lucky that those two kids extended him the pole and didn't run away, right? Like, didn't just absolutely run away with that guy still around. So that that's the only thing that I, I would have changed about that scene, I guess. But we'll get to my change later in a bit. Or do you want do you want me to go first, Rick, or do you want to go next? Well, I might as well just go, because... Because Aisha did not know that the mom died, that's that to me is the problem. Because I thought the exact same thing too. Like I was like, wait a minute, did she die? Did she pass out? Like did she faint? Like what's going on here? And if she's dead, like did, like it was just it was weird. Like it it, um, it it felt like that was the scene that M Night filmed that he had the least interest in, right? Because he clearly is not interested in like the big superhero over the top action scenes or fight scenes or whatever. So it felt like not, I don't know if I would say like a rush job, but it didn't feel like he put as much care into that scene. Yeah, it felt disjointed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it has its moments. I do like the choking out part. I think that was pretty effective, just having that one long take and just showing him mm -hmm. being patient and letting the guy go through his motions. He's not going to get hurt by getting slammed to the wall. It doesn't matter at all. This guy's just going to struggle. I like that all being a mm -hmm. one shot. There are parts though that earlier on when he's when he's going through the house where the editing does seem kind of weird, like maybe yeah, they didn't it's like get he gets from one place to the coverage. next like so fast, like he's teleporting. Yeah, yeah, they didn't get enough coverage maybe or something. I don't know. Uh, and you can't really keep track of like the villain. Like, what is he doing? I don't really understand what he did in the first place. Like, he goes to the front door and then he starts walking around to the back of the house, and then Bruce Willis just walks through the front door. I don't really understand what was going on as to like what the villain. Yeah, he vanishes and then just appears and then knocks him into the pool. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of odd. I mean, it works from a visual from a visual standpoint, but it doesn't actually work as a scene. Um, I think I wonder if you guys are going to disagree with mine, even quite a bit. But the one thing, the one scene that's always stood out to me that I find the most awkward and the least believable, and we already brought this scene up, is the kid with the gun. I don't like the gun scene. I don't think it was earned. I don't see where the kid's motivation was. I don't see why he needed, you know, during the course of the movie, I don't see why he needed his dad to be a superhero so badly. Why it was so important to him that his dad be a superhero. So I can answer this question. I thought about this too, because I was going to pick that scene. Like I do like the way it's shot, which I explained earlier on on the podcast. It's, it's shot great. Yeah. It just doesn't feel like an earned scene to me. Emotionally. But the reason why I think it works, or at least I can defend it, is because... Joseph is so desperate to find a reason and to believe in something for his dad to stay and not move to New York City and for his parents not to split up. And so he sees his dad being a superhero and his whole life changing and his character changing and him actually being happy and so on and so forth has the way that their family is going to stay, like not split up type thing. And so I think the kid is so desperate not to lose his dad that that's why he picks up the gun. Now, if he had actually shot him, I would have a huge problem with the scene because I don't think that kid's capable of actually shooting Bruce Willis or his, his dad, David. No, I doubt he could even... I don't think he could pull the hammer back. He, you know, he was shooting I a revolver. I he got the gun loaded. I, I know, right? 
I was um, like, what? You climbed up into the closet, you got the gun, you found behind the trophies, the bullets. You... I was like, what is going on but, here? But, that, but that's why I think his performance is so great, because throughout the whole entire film, you see the desperation. You see how he just wants his dad to stay. Like, even when he's playing football with the big, huge prospect, like the guy's going to be a big football star in the NFL, he decides to quickly, it's, it's like he doesn't even think about it. He just leaves him and his friends and his, like, huge football star to go play and hang out with his dad. And he's so proud of it. He's like, hey, guys, I'm going to go work out with my dad. And they look at him like, who the, who the hell cares? And for him, it's like, it's his hero. Yeah, there's definitely a hero worship thing going on with that. I just don't think that it was properly explained over the course of the movie, like that the, the kid cares this much. You know what I mean? That wasn't really built. And so the, by the time he pulls the gun out, I was like, whoa, what the, where the hell did this come from? Jesus, that's going through extremes just to prove that your dad's a hero. There might be other ways of doing that. It felt like the kid had reached a desperation breaking point but I didn't know why he was so desperate. Patrick, it's the kitchen. People do desperate <laughs> things in the kitchen. Yeah, but the wife was eerily calm during that scene too, which I, that's another, but that's a whole other thing. Like the wife was a little <laughs> bit weird in this movie. We haven't mentioned who the wife is. We're like Robert an hour Wright into Penn, the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Robert Wright Penn's character in this movie, Audrey, a little strange. There's a lot going on with that woman. It's like, they don't give her a ton to work with. And then when I did see her, she seemed a little bit problematic. Yeah, there is something to her because I love that when she meets Elijah, the little conversation that they have where she kind of explains why she wouldn't go out with a football player, that kind of thing, or why, you know, that car accident is probably what got them together. It does at least hint at some complexity that they never for the rest of the movie really allow her to have. (laughs) I mean, she did marry Sean Penn, right? Oh, the actress. Yes. Yes. (laughs) No, but like, her character, like, okay, so there's that scene where she's in the house and she comes over to talk to David and then she's like, I really need to know. I mean, no matter what your answer is, it won't change my opinion. It won't matter. Have you been with somebody? Because I need, I was like, where is this coming from? That makes no sense. Of course, this is going to change your opinion of everything. <laughs> like, what I guess she was trying about? to be like, cool. <laughs> you know, it was like, don't worry, I'm cool with whatever you did. But she really wasn't going to be. But um, like, who would have been cool finding out that like, so you found out he hooked up with a whole bunch of people. You would have been like, oh, sure. No problem. Great. Good to know. Yeah. No big deal. No big deal. Just wanted to know. <laughs> yeah. And she asked it so casually. And then she has like a breakdown when she finds out the answer. It's just like, well, clearly you had a reaction. So what was the point of the scene? Yeah. I, I Well, like then just, we could get into like Shyamalan the writer. I've always had my issues with Shyamalan the writer. Shyamalan's a great filmmaker. But boy, does he have a problem with dialogue sometimes. And if, if I was going to point out the flaws in, in signs, a lot of time it has to... The, to do with the dialogue but yeah he's i'm not sure he knows how to write certain characters i mean that poor woman was that character was a mess and then like the whole thing of i find a note on my windshield and i take my son with me to this stranger who's asking me questions about my life and the wife was like kind of calm about it like oh you brought him he met elijah uh (laughs) what (laughs) i'm a mom if I found out that my husband took my son to go meet this crazy person who left a note on the windshield, I would have torn him a new one. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, that's not a normal reaction. No, no. She was very chill through the entire entire thing. Like, I felt like she had taken a Valium through the whole movie. Because then later she's like, you know, if Elijah comes by the house again... We should call the police. I know, yep. right? And like, she even meets the man. Like, he goes to her work, 
and she's treating him and she doesn't think that's odd when he's asking her all these personal questions but yet she yeah. answers the questions she's like i don't like you know what i mean like she's a weird character yeah i don't think they knew what to do with like it's like they knew they needed to have a wife but they just didn't really know what to do with her yeah so she was just there you know when uh joseph pulls the gun on david couldn't she just yes. like step in and walk in front of david because he's not going to shoot her because she doesn't have superpowers right take the gun from him. the mom could take now i guess you wouldn't because you don't believe that that david is a superhero you wouldn't want the gun to accidentally go off if, if you tried to take a gun from him. you want the kid to lay it down no, but, no, no, no. Uh, I'm not saying she goes and tries to take it from his hands because anything can happen. Like, he can accidentally pull the trigger. I'm saying she just has to walk over to the other side of the kitchen and stand right in front of David. Yeah, I mean, that that would be a bold move to make because you're talking about risking... <laughs> you're risking your own life, essentially. <laughs> like, so? What else <laughs> is she instinctu doing? <laughs> instinctually, people aren't going to generally walk in front of a gun. I get, it's, it's a pretty bold move to do that especially when your marriage is on the rocks and you don't know whether you want to save this guy quite yet. But, uh, I kind of got the feeling that she didn't really want to get back with David. Cause the whole entire film, she's trying to talk him out of it. She's like, you know, it's okay. Like, uh, you know, we, we just one dinner date. And it's okay. I understand if you want to change your mind, do you want to change your mind? One dinner date. That's like, you know, right now is your good time. Right. <laughs> I always thought she was talking herself out of it, like talking her own expectations down. I always feel like that's what people do when they they actually have high expectations, but they don't they don't want to disappoint themselves. They want to set themselves up for disappointment, I guess. So they just kind of overcompensate by saying like, "Well, it's probably not going to work out. This is you know, it doesn't matter. None of this matters. You know, nothing matters to me. You can tell me you slept with people, and I will I'll be cool either way. And but it does matter. Everything matters to them. So I always got the sense that she actually wanted to get back together, but was continuously setting her expectations low so that she wouldn't be disappointed when because she assumed he didn't want to or something like that i don't know there's I, a lot going on in all of those scenes <laughs> i don't know their relationship was just a little bit weird because i also found it was really weird that they had this accident that ended his career she's a physiotherapist you didn't have any kind of weird suspicious vibes about how all of a sudden he abandoned football but showed no outward signs of any injury yeah, yeah, he was hurt, but how was he hurt? <laughs> yeah, like you were literally studying the human body and how it works. You got out of this accident where you were completely messed up, and somehow your husband just stopped playing football, but then goes into a job where it's a line of work that's potentially quite physical. Mm -hmm. He's running up and down stairs at this giant stadium. He's patting people down. Like, you're lifting weights in the basement. I was just very confused. <laughs> I don't think Shyamalan went into the research on that stuff. He was yeah. probably like, yeah, um, I don't know. She works with like physio stuff. So <laughs> that, that's I'm just saying, you had a bad accident. You were a football player. I would imagine there was a certain rehabilitation period that would have happened. It gave him a great excuse as to how <laughs> Elijah meets her. That That's what I think he needed to have happen. So she had to be a physical therapist in some way. I mean, I guess he could have also made her a doctor. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Although, yeah. <laughs> she could have There's, been a surgeon. She could have been a doctor instead. Random. Been a little more affluent, probably. Maybe he wanted to keep them on the, the blue collar thing, like like the working class thing, like Rickett said. Because if she had been a surgeon or a doctor, they, they, their life would have been different. And his, him being out of a job and working as a security guard probably wouldn't have flown <laughs> as well. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, hard to say. All right, we'll swing back more towards the positive uh, end of things, though. So, Aisha, who is the MVP? This is, this could be an interesting an interesting answer. Who's the MVP of Unbreakable? Ooh. Could be anybody. Could be an actor. Could be the director. Could be a cinematographer, composer. Anybody you want. You want. I mean, in terms of acting, I thought everybody. I mean, Bruce Willis, Samuel Jackson. I couldn't choose. So I guess if I had to say who the real MVP would, I'd say the camera. Okay. Cinematographer, in, maybe? Yeah, like maybe the cinematographer, just in terms of the way the film was shot. I could also give props to the uh, person who came up with Samuel Jackson's wig. <laughs> Which is a fantastic <laughs> one. Because right? that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so just so you know, the cinematographer, his name is Eduardo Serra. He uh, He's Portuguese. Um, he's worked on Harry Potter. He's worked on um, he's worked on a lot of movies. Wow, but I think this was his first big film. He's got a lot of great framing in this, and you know, I, obviously Shyamalan has has a lot to do with that as well. But the compositions are great. I actually really like the you know the character being in the center of the frame. A lot of times they're also framed by a doorway. Yeah, they look like a comic book. Yeah, so they, it's, it has a cell kind of look to it. Which and uh, actually in the making of, so like M. Night is the one who decided on the long takes, but the cinematographer was the one who decided to make a lot of the shots look like the panels from a comic book. So a lot of it is very flat, which I normally wouldn't like, but it totally works in this movie. It does, absolutely. Uh, Rick, who is your MVP? This is a tough choice for me. Davis Dovefield. Who? And you're like, who? <laughs> yes, I am like, who? So Davis Duffield played David Dunn at age 20 and somehow looked exactly like Bruce Willis. <laughs> and I thought they used a de-aging process, what? like CGI. And I'm like, whoa, mind blown. It's actually an actor. I, I was thinking the same thing, by the way. That is Did you not think I it was CGI? That. I was so distracted during that scene by the fact that that guy looked so much like Bruce Willis. But I was like, but it's not, though. They didn't have those effects back then. That's what I was I like, wow, too. this is great. That was amazing casting. And it completely, the scene just passed me by. No, because that's all the thing. Can... You watch this movie in 2020 and you think, okay, it's like, uh, it's like the, what, what should we call it? The Netflix one with uh, De Niro and Pacino and. Um, uh, the Irishman. The yeah. Irishman, right? And how they, they use the de aging process. And I was like, yeah wait a minute, this is like 2000. I'm like, I don't think they were able to do that. And no, it's an actor. Um, but at the end of the day, like this is an M night movie. He's the director. He's the writer. He wrote it specifically for Samuel Jackson. He's the one who wanted Bruce Willis in the movie after working with him in six cents. He pretty much chose the cast. And I mean, he's responsible for most of the, the, the decision-making. And yes, like, you know, we can we can point to Samuel Jackson coming up with the idea to dress his character up in purple and have, like, a glass cane. And, I mean, everyone contributes ideas, but at the end of the day, it's also the director who says yes or no. And so he says yes to the good ideas and no to the bad ideas. So I'm going to have to go with M. Night. And I think, overall, this is his best film. It's maybe not my favorite, but I think from start to finish, it's maybe his best yeah, I think you can make an argument that it's technically his best. Again, I'll always like. I think Signs is a is just a more entertaining movie to me, but it has more flaws, I think, as well. Um, 
but I'm willing to overlook those flaws because I love the stuff in it that I love so much. Uh, M Knight is, it's always, a, his career is fascinating to me. I've seen almost all of his movies. I, I did not see, I've not seen his first movie, the one before the sixth sense. And I cannot for the life of me remember what it's called. Yeah. And I didn't see after earth or the, what was the other, the anime one that he did. Avatar. The, the last, last airbender. Avatar. Yeah. The last airbender. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen either of those two movies, but I've seen all of his sort of M, his M night Shyamalan movies. Right. I don't count those two as those were just sort of director for higher movies. Um, his career is, I, I think the visit basically sums up his, his talents pretty well. Like he's one of the worst screenwriters out there (laughs) (laughs) and he's one of the best suspense filmmakers out there, period. Like when he tries to write dialogue, it's usually an embarrassment when he doesn't get good actors to speak that dialogue. And I think that's where you, he has been rescued so many times by great actors speaking his incredibly awkward dialogue. And so you don't really notice a lot of the time, right? When you've got Mel Gibson or you've got Samuel Jackson, or you've got Bruce Willis saying your dialogue, mm-hmm. you, the audience is going to notice how atrocious some of it is. Or when you have Marky Mark. Oh, well, God. that's the reason it starts to go off the rails a little bit. Yeah. And, and like I said, this is why The Visit is the perfect example, because none of the, nobody in that is like a great actor. <laughs> and so you get to see all of it. Like people trying to say his dialogue, it's ridiculous. Um, so I, it's hard for me to give him the MVP, because I also know that had different actors been speaking some of these lines, I feel like it would not have worked. Like it would have just been another The Happening kind of thing. So you think that if uh, you replace Bruce Willis with Mark Wahlberg and you replace Robin Wright with Zoe Deschanel and then who would Sam Jackson be replaced with? John Leguizamo? Legu- Legu- I can't pronounce the dude's Leguizamo? name. Leguizamo? John Leguizamo? Yeah. Oh, that would be a mess. That movie would be a literal train wreck. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. So my MVP is going to go to Samuel L. Jackson because I find him to be the the heart of the movie and the a big source of charisma in the movie because – even though Bruce Willis does a great job, his character is so low-key and low-energy. I like to have at least one character with some enthusiasm, some passion in a movie for something, and that is Samuel L. Jackson. I think he finds a way to speak a lot of that dialogue, not just well, but really well, so that uh, that you actually get invested in in the story and the friendship of, of these two. I think he's, he's so important to playing that character. I think it's somebody else playing that character and the movie tanks. Um, yeah. So even though Shyamalan obviously plays a huge part and, and he's his filmmaking, I, I'm not going to question his filmmaking abilities because they're, they're aces, but boy, can he write some bad dialogue at times? And even in this movie, if it's not spoken by the right actors, it's going to come across as bad. So I'm giving it to Sam Jackson. So going forward, who is the audience? Do, first of all, Aisha, do you think there's an audience for Unbreakable going forward, especially in the climate of, of you know, the context of superhero movies nowadays? And who would that audience be? What, are, what kind of people do you think they are? Um, I mean, there's definitely an audience for this movie. I would think the audience for this movie would be slightly older people, mm-hmm. maybe people age, let's say, 35 to 50. So, you know, people that grew up maybe reading comic books and watching the cartoons, but at the same time can appreciate a a subtlety to the storytelling 
it doesn't have to be sort of like an explosion and everybody wearing spandex and masks. And, you know. Yeah, and they'll have the patience to actually sit somebody through who, it. Yeah, somebody who appreciates a story being told. Mm-hmm. Like the same type of people, like they like superhero movies, but at the same time, they don't need it to be so in your face with the fact that it's a superhero movie. Right. I mean, what we're getting now is just being fed to us. I mean, I, I think I've already written about this several times, Rick. I think you laughed once, but I attributed it to slop essentially being poured in the trough. What? And uh, the audience is... Like pigs, when you feed them, yeah. you put the slop in the trough. That's what they the eat. Audiences oh, are, are okay, okay. The I misheard. I misheard. <laughs> <laughs> the glutton uh, of the audience. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, that's essentially what, what Disney has done. They've, just, they've, they've been able to manufacture goop that they just pour into our troughs, we lap it up. We should mention that this movie was actually produced by Disney, which also makes it fascinating that back in 2000, Disney was able to produce a comic book origin story like this. Yeah, it was completely different. They obviously had fought Marvel at the time. This is done through Touchstone Pictures, which is one of Disney's subsidiaries. Um, yeah, so it was... Uh, Disney did experiment a little. Like, now they're, Disney's completely different than they were back then. They were at least trying different things back then. Now, of course, they've, they've, they hit upon something that works, and now they're just going to do that forever and ever and ever until it doesn't work anymore. If if you were going to call, like, Unbreakable, would Unbreakable be a decent gateway movie into M. Night Shyamalan's good stuff, or would you call that one of his least... Ex- I, I, would, I almost think this is one of his least accessible movies. I think you're better off if you're trying to introduce somebody to Shyamalan going with the Sixth Sense or Science or Stuart Little. Stuart Little? <laughs> no. Uh, I think the Sixth Sense and Science are more his, like, that's more mainstream, has more mainstream appeal than something like Unbreakable. I think you got to ease somebody into Unbreakable. I remember when I worked at the video store, everyone complained about Science. I used to recommend it to all the customers, and they used to get so mad at me. They're like, this movie's so stupid. There's no suspense. The aliens look like toys. <laughs> they were so mad. Don't care about the water thing. All I need is the shot of him reaching for that baseball bat in the end. And I'm like, I'm sold on that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> oh, I love I love that movie. But I do think it's got a more mainstream appeal as far as scares. But The Sixth Sense, obviously, a classic. Even though I don't think it's his best movie. Um, and it's not even the most... I mean, it's not something I, I care to rewatch a lot. Oh, it's actually my favorite. And every time I watch it, I'm amazed at how how well written and well directed it is. Yeah, it's a very simple movie, but it's almost filmed to perfection. No, and he did a fantastic job of it. It's just the subject matter doesn't really appeal to me, and I I don't like child actors being the lead. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a huge fan, to tell you the truth, of Haley Joel Osment's performance in that movie. I think he's adequate. I don't think he was Oscar nomination worthy. Uh, I, that's just my own personal thing. I tend to be more WC field. Stay away from the child actors. Never were kids and animals. <laughs> but, uh, so I'll take some of the other movies over that one. But it is finely crafted. And it would be a movie that I would recommend to people who hadn't seen an M. Night Shyamalan movie. That would be one of the first ones I, I would recommend for sure. Because I think anybody can like The Sixth Sense. It's just, yeah, it's I wouldn't built. recommend that movie to people because if you recommend The Sixth Sense to people, then any other movie directed by Shyamalan, they're going to go in expecting it to have a big twist. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But then, then which, one do you, 
Do you soften the blow by recommending uh, not the happening? What was the one with the with the maintenance man who lives in the apartment complex? And then there's the girl in the water. Lady in the, the water. water. Like, do you soften the blow? Like, okay, they're gonna get better than this. I promise. But here, here's the <laughs> thing. Like, not to drag out this podcast too long, but the last thing I'm gonna say is I actually really like the village, Lady in the Water, and the Happening because I view those three movies as B movies. Like, they're not like maybe he wanted them to be good. I'm not entirely sure, but I always kind of felt like the structure, the screenplay, the themes, like what it's about. It always just felt like the B movie. And I do think, like, the first half of The Village is amazing. The second half I really like, but I understand why people think it falls apart. I like Lady in the Water. Even The Happening, I find The Happening to be hilarious. Like, it's this environment, it's like this this movie with this message about the environment, and it has this crazy weird performance from Mark Wahlberg. And I don't know, it's just such a strange movie about, like, trees killing people, like, and air. Yeah. Like, it's so weird. <laughs> It's very strange. I, I do think that he intended Lady in the So I, I watched Lady in the Water because I know that there are a couple of Goombastop writers who actually like it. I knew you did, and there was another one that, um, she recommended it to me. So I, I tried it out, and I really wanted to like it. I ultimately couldn't. I think it was incredibly sanctimonious. <laughs> I think he intended it to be completely serious, um, saving the world with his 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 stories. Boy, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't I didn't enjoy that one at all. Yeah, it was a little bit goofy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like the performances. And I like everybody in it. It's just that I couldn't, except for the performance of Shyamalan playing the, the saintly writer that was going to save the world. Um, Which, by the way, even his cameo in Unbreakable is a little shady. He's not exactly the best actor. Like, when Hitchcock used to make his cameos, he wouldn't necessarily give himself, like, two minutes of screen time and, like, 20 lines of dialogue. He wouldn't give himself any lines of dialogue usually, <laughs> unless it was like this like run like one line or something. Like, he'd say like one line, yeah, at the most. Yeah, but uh, this is Shyamalan's best cameo. Hitchcock knew it was silly. Shyamalan thinks that there's that he can be important. Uh, that's always the worst part of Signs to me is that he plays such a pivotal role in that movie. Well, I thought it was kind of beautiful to watch Bryce Dallas Howard play a character named Story, who's really a mermaid living in a pool and falls in love with Paul Giamatti. Really wanted to like that movie because I love fairy tale <laughs> stuff and it I couldn't do it. It's not put together very well. Note to yeah. self, do not put on the list of movies to review in the future. <laughs> no, do put it on the movies to review in the future because it'll be hilarious. <laughs> I mean, this has been pretty positive. This is a good movie. It's fun. Yeah, it's one of yeah. my favorite superhero. It's one of my favorite superhero movies. I guess All I right, so it that way. Where do you, what is your favorite superhero movie? What'd you say? What's your top five? My top five? Yeah. Uh, I really like The Incredibles. Okay. I liked uh, Unbreakable. I'm trying to think other superhero. I like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a while, these movies all kind of, Deadpool was entertaining. It was. <laughs> Black Panther was good because you know what it represented and everything. Mm-hmm. Scott Pilgrim. Mm, yeah. Does that count as superhero one. or more comic? I guess, I guess that's comic. But I guess they could, I I would put those in the same same thing. I guess for the most part. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, a lot of them are just kind of campy. Like I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's fun because it's a popcorn movie. Yeah, the, and I think all the Marvel movies, to varying degrees, are that. Like, I, I, I don't think I'd put a. Maybe there's one Marvel movie that I'd put on my list, and that would be 
Captain America Winter Soldier, which I think plays out more like a 70s political thriller than a superhero movie. Um, but that might be the only one of the Marvel movies that I would put on a superhero movie list. I mean, I would I would have the original Superman, I'd have Spider-Man 2, I'd have Darkman. Um, those are the ones that I think of when I think of superhero movies that, that would actually inspire me as far as their filmmaking goes. Um, and Unbreakable, I think, it deserves a place on that list because it is so different there's nothing else like it i uh i think i'm gonna agree like i would i would add the dark knight incredibles spider-man 2 the sam raimi film and i really love dark man i'm I'm not gonna i'm only gonna count superhero comic book movies i'm not gonna mention stuff like ghost world or sin city exactly um Mm -hmm. unbreakable guaranteed and man, I don't know. There's there's a lot of good ones, you know. To be fair, and I do like the Captain America. You're right, Patrick. It is one of the better ones. But I really, really just love the original. Like, well, not the original. I guess the 1978 Superman film. Yeah, Christopher yeah. Reeves, the Richard Donner one. Yep, Still it's just a great uh, movie. Top five. See, I haven't seen that in such a long time. I can barely remember it's, it. Aisha, I'm telling you, it is top five. It is so good. It stands the test of time. Like minus one scene, it is amazing it is so 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 good i recommend everyone rewatch it trust me it it, it it puts the marvel films to shame like especially given the fact it was made in 1978 and it they didn't have the technology that they have now so good and christopher reeve he's just like he's the best okay. greatest male scream of all time i would say is this is superman when lois lane dies oh okay best best male scream ever um, <laughs> <All right. laughs> which is a great way to end this podcast. <laughs> um, Aisha, where can people find you? Do you, you don't do you write uh, online or anything like that, or can they find you online? Would you want them to find you online? That's another good question. Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I really don't know. I didn't I used to write, but then I, I used to write a blog, but I don't really write it anymore. I mean, I'm on Twitter. You can find me at cynical crayon. Uh, I don't know. I guess that's I mean, I don't know. I'm not super active on social media. I guess I'm kind of in the same boat with you. You can't really find me online at a whole lot of places. I'm not active on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. I haven't written for the site for a little while, but again, I keep telling people this every week. You know, starting next year, I hope that that will change, and I think it will. Um, once things calm down on my work side of things. Um, but yeah, otherwise, Rick. Where can everybody find the podcast? Where can they find you? Where can they find the site? Goobastomp.com. We also have our sister site, tiltmagazine.net. But the podcast is at goobastomp.com. And you can find all the links to the places where you can listen to the show, including iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, you name it. We're on a bunch of new platforms. I think we're on like iHeartRadio. I don't know. There's so many. Like, I don't know. They're every, it's everywhere. It's on every single platform you can probably want it on to listen to the show. But yeah, give us a rating on iTunes because for some reason iTunes is like still the number one place for podcasts. And I think next week we're going to come back and we are going to discuss. What did I choose? Oh my God. Um, what did I pick? Oh, oh, next week is going to be good. The People Under the Stairs, the Wes Craven movie that not too many people have seen that Jordan Peele is remaking. I happen to be a huge fan of. 
I have never seen this movie, so this will be my first time seeing it this week. We'll see what happens. We'll see. Maybe I'll love it. All right, with that, we'll see you guys next week. Joseph, what the hell are you doing? Oh, my God. You don't believe. I'll show you. You can't get hurt. That gun's not loaded. That's not where I keep the bullets. And your rookie of the year trophy. Joseph, did you load that gun? You won't get hurt. Elijah was wrong. When did he meet Elijah? He was with me when I met him. No one believes him. Joseph, listen to me. Sometimes when people get sick or hurt for a long time, like Elijah, their mind gets hurt too. When they start to think things that aren't true, he told me what he thought about your father. It isn't true. I'll show you. Do you remember the story about the, about the boy that almost drowned in the pool? That was me they were talking about. I almost died. That was me. I'm not lying, okay? I just didn't remember it, that's all. You know your father was injured in college. You know that. You know all about that. Don't do it. He'll die, Joseph. I'll just shoot him once. Joseph, listen to what your mother... Don't be scared.